Hello coaches, welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. I'm your host today, Dave Mullins, ITA COO. Uh, Today I have the pleasure of interviewing my boss, Dr. Timothy Russell, who is the president and CEO of the ITA. Tim spent three decades as a distinguished educator at Arizona State, the Ohio State University, and the University of Rochester. He became well-known in the tennis world for his tireless work and leadership as a longtime USTA volunteer. Due to his extensive contributions to the tennis world, he has been inducted into the ITA Men's Collegiate Hall of Fame, the USTA Southwest Hall of Fame, and the USTA Central Arizona Hall of Fame. Tim has led the ITA for the past eight years, ushering in many positive changes to ITA business practices to help keep pace with the ever-changing landscape of college athletics while at the same time building the credibility of college tennis with key stakeholders in the global tennis industry. In this podcast, we discuss the future of college athletics, the NCAA COC decision to pilot the NCAA singles and doubles championships in the fall of 2024 and 25, and the potential role of television coverage in college tennis. I hope you enjoy this conversation and learn a lot from it. Tim Russell, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Well, you got to grill me a few years ago on my interview, so the tables are turned and I'm going to grill you here for the next hour. How does that sound? It sounds great. And let me start by uh, saying thanks for all you've been uh, doing. That grilling obviously worked uh, out well, not only for you, but for me and for the ITA and for College Tennis. Well, thank you. It's been, been a pleasure. Well... Lots of questions here for you. It's obviously been a, a busy month for us, Tim. So um, don't want to kind of clear up uh, a few things and discuss the future, you know, discuss the past a little bit, but more forward looking today, because I think coaches are extremely interested in, in how you view the college landscape. But before we get into all that, Tim, can you just tell us a little bit about our, your background? I don't think our coaches maybe know you uh, as well as as we would like them to know you a fascinating background in some other areas not just the tennis industry but talk about your intersections with the tennis world and then how you became the ITA CEO yeah sure now, we all have our own life story from a tennis perspective my mother dearly departed who was a college tennis player herself at Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, actually taught me to play in the fourth grade. I never played uh, on the high school team, never played on a college varsity team. I played through high school and college, but my sports were actually track and and basketball. But at the same time that I focused on my uh, academics, I was really an up and coming musician. And that included uh, being the principal cellist of the American Youth Symphony in high school that did a a European tour, uh, ultimately after graduating uh, from high school in uh, Columbus, Ohio, at Upper Arlington High School, went to Northwestern, uh, was a music major, had a great time at that terrific institution. And then I was awarded what was called a Danforth Foundation Fellowship. And I ended up getting to choose a graduate school, did a PhD uh, following a master's at The Ohio State University, Uh, went on to teach at Ohio State for three years in the music department before moving to Rochester, New York, uh, where I taught at both the University of Rochester, a division three school and the very acclaimed Eastman School of Music. 
so basically my career was as an orchestra conductor. Uh, I was an orchestra conductor in Rochester and then uh, my wife and I left to go to Naples, Florida where I was the music director at the Naples Philharmonic. And it was there that uh, we really kind of upped our game in tennis. Not only did I start playing a lot, my wife took up the game in the uh, 30s and uh, our son, Jeff, uh, who now works for USTA Player Development, took up the game at eight, eight years old. And our, our daughter played as well. And after uh, living in uh, Naples uh, for four years, uh, we moved to the Tempe area, Tempe, Arizona, where I became a professor of music at Arizona State. And I was there for 22 years as both the director of orchestras, but also uh, for 20 years conducted all of the ballets between uh, the Phoenix Symphony and Ballet Arizona. But it was at the same time that I really became an active tennis volunteer. Jeff and Kate started playing a lot of USTA tournaments. I became active with USTA Central Arizona and then became the uh, president of the USTA Southwest Section Board, went on to serve nationally with the USTA as uh, the chair of the USTA's Collegiate Varsity Committee and then chaired the USTA's Junior Competition Committee. And it was from about 2002 up until 2015 when I was hired at the ITA that I was working a lot with David Benjamin at the ITA. And at the same time, our current board chair, John Vigozin, uh, was becoming active at the national level of the USTA as well. And he was not only the, uh, the vice chair of the collegiate committee, but quickly joined the board and went on to be the chairman and president CEO of the, the USTA. So it's amazing how the confluence of tennis came together. So having watched our kids play in the juniors got me involved as an active volunteer and then working to try to upgrade tennis in America. Those were my roles with the junior comp and with the collegiate varsity committee. And then uh, in around 2014, I think some coaches might know that I actually chaired what became the ITA's format change committee. I was not working with uh, the ITA officially, but I knew David Benjamin. He asked me to help. And then it was the next year he announced his uh, retirement after 37 years as being the executive director and chairman of the board of the ITA. I actually was on sabbatical at ASU. My wife and I were actually in Australia at the Australian Open when I received an email from the headhunters. And uh, I was really intrigued. Uh, I think those who know me know that I've always loved tennis, but it was kind of an opportunity to reinvent yourself, right? Having been for 30 and 40 years an orchestra conductor and a professor, I always viewed this job first and foremost as staying in higher education. I also felt like I was now coming to work on behalf of not only 3,000 coaches, but 20,000 student athletes, and in some respects, the tie between music and conducting and running the ITA is we're now trying to get 3,000 coaches to sing from the same playbook. So uh, how's that for trying to tie some of this together for a first answer? No, I think that's great, Tim, and, and again, lets our coaches know just how involved you were in the world of tennis and and want to thank you for volunteering those thousands of hours. I mean, I think our sport is only as good as, as our volunteers uh, all across the world. So I know uh, I've learned a lot 
about this industry from volunteering. So you came to this space. You should also, uh, I think you left out, you mentioned Jeff, but he was a top college player at William and Mary. He went through that um, pathway and, and was a you know top developing junior, played college tennis. So I'd imagine you'd watched a lot of college tennis before you came to, to be the CEO. Yeah, in fact, you know, Je Jeff and Kate were both top players. Jeff actually was a three-time state champion in Arizona. Uh, at one point, he was, you know, ranked between top 10 and 20 in the USDA. They did rankings a little bit differently than they do. And as you mentioned, went on to, to William and Mary. But even before he went to college, teaching at Arizona State, we attended a bunch of Arizona State matches long before Matt Hill was the coach. Lou Belkin was the men's coach, but I've uh, known Sheila McInerney now since 1993 when we moved here. So we were going to ASU matches long back in the days when Sargis Sargisian was winning on the men's side, Allison Bradshaw on the women's side, guys like Justin Gimmelstab were flying in from UCLA to not only play in the ATP tour in Scottsdale, but the next day over at the ASU Whiteman court. So we've been attending college matches for a very long time. Yeah. Okay, Tim, well, you're just recently back from the NCAA convention in San Antonio. Can you share with us some of the findings out there and, and any predictions based on the conversations, the, the, the uh, panel discussions you went to, um, you know, the dinners you had with, with folks within the industry? What does the future hold for college athletics and maybe more specifically college tennis and other Olympic sports? Yeah, great, great question. It was uh a fascinating time in San Antonio. I think the messaging that had been prepared uh, and you know, we all have our own takes, I think is that in many respects, college athletics is thriving, but uh, similarly, we all heard that it's also threatened. Uh, and and we, uh, I think those of us as leaders try to not only look at intended consequences, but unintended consequences. And I think we've now seen some of those things come true. The Alston finding from the Supreme Court has led a lot of D1 schools to have to now spend about $3 million a year more, spending $6,000, $59.80, whatever it is, uh, for, for each college athlete. We all know about what's going on with name, image, and likeness. I think those of us who were forward thinking saw a lot of what was coming. You know, for example, all of us were told name, image, and likeness was not supposed to be about, you know, pay for play. And that's what it's become. And there's no enforcement. So I think people are concerned about NIL. We're all learning about uh, everything from conference realignment and media, uh, and also the kind of continuing nuclear arms race of football coach salaries, of, of assistant coach salaries, of debt uh, at uh, college campuses, including for, for facilities. At this meeting, they introduced the new president of the NCAA, Charlie uh, Baker, who's coming from two terms as being governor of Massachusetts. Mark Emmert is stepping down. And I think if you look at what the NCAA search committee did, I think they intentionally chose a politician knowing that much of the work of the NCAA is going to be dealing with Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of things that people are concerned about are, are litigation. Uh, uh, and, and I think 
They're looking for Congress to uh, be setting some of these guidelines. And I think it's gonna take uh, time. Uh, but I think a lot of that is about the, you know, the division one space, but all of this trickles down. You know, I think one of the biggest things that everybody's looking out for is what would happen if in fact student athletes were deemed to be employees. Mm -hmm. uh, you've asked me to kind of look out into the future and I think, should that happen? And, and I think we all hope it won't happen, but should it happen, it could be really bad for Olympic sports, right? It could be hard enough for all the other sports, but this idea of trying to deal with legislation, uh, the NCAA clearly made a choice of someone who has been able to reach across both sides of an argument with Democrats and Republicans, but also has figured out how to navigate the world of legislation. But I think people are, are also concerned about things like concussion lawsuits. I mean, we could go down a long time because I basically try to be a, an upbeat, optimistic person, but we have to be realists at looking at the environment. So I, I would say that I heard things like we're thriving, but we're threatened. But also, if you listen to some of the really smart people who I like to respect, they understand that opportunities come within change and chaos, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the most fascinating sessions I went to was uh, uh, put on by the Knight Commission. I've always always admired Amy Perko and the work she does with the Knight Commission. They've had a bunch of great people working there, including Arnie Duncan, people like Len Elmore. And they put on a fascinating presentation that basically said, what is the world going to look like with another billion dollars? <laughs> so clearly they focused a lot on the college football playoff expansion. And for those of you who don't know the Knight Commission, you should actually look up their their website, it's fantastic. They have their presentation up on the website that they actually gave in San Antonio, but they were saying, look, let's actually look at different models. So for example, I think those of you who follow college football know that the college football playoff has its own organization, but the uh, NCAA is still responsible for a lot of things, including the potential litigation, right? So the Knight Commission was going, hey, maybe we need to actually set aside you know, m m monies uh, uh, that could take care of that part of the funding. The Knight Commission, a couple, maybe six months ago, maybe a year ago, time flies, had even put forward a proposal that maybe the NCAA should jettison football completely, right? I think we all understand the implications of, of, of football and money and, and media rights, but also into Title IX counting and, uh, and the like. But the Knight Commission was based in data. So they not only showed this meteoric rise of coach salaries, but they showed an astonishing number of uh, dollars that have been spent on coach buyouts and severance packages, something over the last five to eight years of like $300 million. So one of the things that the Knight Commission has put forward is what they call the CARE model, which is a compensation model for dollars that tries to make sure they're paying attention to what we all really believe is important, which is education, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you asked me specifically about meetings. So attending the uh, Knight Commission was fantastic. Attending the general session where Charlie Baker gave his introductory remarks was terrific. Uh, attending the D1 forum, where we learned about the transformation committee was also uh, fantastic. Uh, and again, 
to be quite honest, I'm not a fan of a lot of what's going on in, in, in Division I college athletics because it's really stretching a lot about what I believe personally about an educational model. But again, we all as leaders want to keep up with the, the trends. And then the very specific meeting that I presented at was the Division I's Competition Oversight Committee, uh, which is the COC, and they were doing the final vetting of the proposal that the NCAA D1 Tennis Committee had made about moving uh, the individual singles and doubles from the spring to the fall. And I was one of the presenters, as was uh, Brian Hainline. Dr. Hainline is the chief medical officer of the uh, NCAA, but also the incoming chairman of the board and president of the USTA. And uh, this is a proposal that the D1 Tennis Committee made. Uh, the ITA was involved in its formulation. Dr. Hainline spoke very impassionedly about uh, student athlete health and welfare. Uh, the uh, uh, NCAA staff had told uh, the committee that this current uh, structure is the longest of all the structures, meaning the team followed by individuals, that it's not necessarily the best championship, which is one of our goals. Uh, they had tracked the number of people who had dropped out either before the event or during the event. And ultimately they came to decide that they wanted to try a two-year pilot in 24, uh, 2024 and uh, 2025. Uh, and so that's what we're all planning for. That's what the NCAA is planning for. That's what the ITA will help plan for. And it comes within the context that we just described, but it also comes within the context of this May's upcoming uh, NCAA D1, 2, and 3 championships, which will take place together uh, in uh, Lake Nona, the USTA's national campus. I think the dates are something like between the 16th and 30th of, of May when all is said and done. But it was a very, very exciting meeting. The last one I'll tell you about, and then we can get on to your next question, is that there's a group that the ITA is involved with called the ICAC, which is the Intercollegiate Coaches Association uh, Coalition. And this is 20 or so Olympic sports that get together regularly to talk about common issues of concern and best practice. And I had a terrific opportunity to uh, interact with some really bright counterparts, including Mike Moyer at, uh, at, at uh, wrestling and uh, the new executive director of the swimming coaches, uh, Samantha Baronet, who used to be an associate commissioner of the Colonial Athletic Conference. So it's always great to interact with people who are doing the same work that uh, that we are. So it was a full time in San Antonio uh, and a very productive one. And it's always great to, you know, to have the ITA present in these leadership discussions. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you were there, Tim. And it sounds uh, fascinating, obviously, interesting time for, for college athletics over these last few years, probably since since COVID accelerated a number of matters. And I definitely want to return to that NCA COC decision shortly, but just you know, talking about there's some weighty topics there, name, image, and likeness. Um, you know, the the whole football model, the billion billion dollars. There's there's certain things, obviously, when Congress is involved, um, 
there's very little influence we can have on, on those issues. But where can the ITA, where can we as a coaches association, as a national governing body, where can we have influence? Where can we uh, direct the conversation to help college tennis, you know, succeed and advance going forward? Yeah, terrific question. So one, I think it starts with how we view our association and it certainly starts with how I view my job and I know how the ITA board views its role. Uh, and it starts with what is the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. And we're trying to uh, make sure that college tennis has uh, a really great future. We want it to be, you know, not only one of the most vibrant college sports, but we want our sport to be a leader. So from that vision, you say, how can we do that? And, and I think that uh, some of the things that we've been doing are the right ones, which is to say, who are the partners that are going to help us best position our sport for the future? And if coaches have been following our recent announcements, you know, we've been uh, expanding our partnership with the United States Tennis Association. They're the governing body of the sport in America. They're a $400 million a year organization that has one of the greatest assets in our sport, that being the US Open. But they also have a mission to grow the game uh, in, in America. We've recently expanded a partnership with the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, which is the governing body of, of the sport globally. 200 and I think eight or 213 federations. Uh, and I think everybody in the D1 and 2 space know that 62, 63, 61% of our student athletes are international student athletes. We all know that tennis is a global sport. It's the third most popular sport in the world. So for us to position ourselves globally, I think is important. I think it's, it's noteworthy that in the recent announcements we've made, it's the first time really in history that the ITF has actually made a public statement about the importance of college tennis. Uh, and I think this is huge. And I think everyone knows that on the heels of that, we made an announcement with the ATP tour. And again, the first time that uh, that that association, governing body of professional tennis for men globally, has talked about the importance of the college pathway and not only spoken about its importance, but has actually put forward an amazing new accelerator program. We are anticipating a similar announcement soon on the women's side. Uh, the other things we've done with the ITF include the partnership with the World Tennis Number, which is fast becoming the common currency for tennis in the world. And so, you know, your question was, how do we have influence? And I think part of it is to make sure we're partnering with the other major players in, in the sport. Uh, if you read the release about the WTN, Bubba Cunningham, I think is one of the great athletics directors, uh, athletic director at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, gave a great quote that as we all think about how to ensure the future of Olympic sports, Bubba has submitted that this model that the ITA has created in partnering with the USDA and the ITF is the model for the future. Uh, if people look at other Olympic sports, Dave, not all of the coaches associations have great relationships with their governing bodies. And I think this is really, really uh, an important uh, moment. Uh, it's a critical moment. And we're trying to, first and foremost, 
partner with great people. Second of all, uh, we as an association are trying to provide you know, more value to our coaches and to our student athletes. And while everybody doesn't like change, Dave, the fact is, you know, one thing we all know is going to happen is the world's going to keep changing. So instead of, you know, just sitting where the status quo might be easy, we're not just changing for the sake of change. We're trying to study change thoughtfully. So again, some of the things that I'm going to say people know, some might not know, but two years ago, the USDA and the ITA partnered with Snodgrass Partners, uh, now called SP Athletics, with a great friend of, of college tennis, Tom Jacobs, you know, who not only worked for 17 years at the NCAA, including running the tennis championships, but was the general manager uh, for the uh, player development at the USDA. And now is an associate uh, commissioner, senior associate commissioner, college athletics. And between Tom and his group and uh, the ITA and the USDA, we actually not only surveyed our coaches about the future, but Tom and his team interviewed 50 college presidents, ADs, commissioners. So you asked me, what are things we can do? One is to talk to the other leaders in the sport. You know, if we are people who every night read the D123 tickers, which I encourage everybody to do, you'll see that there's a lot of smart people out there, but everybody's trying to deal in this wild west world. You know, you know, I try to make sure I'm having conversations with whether it's, you know, Greg Sankey at the SEC, who's, you know, one of the most visionary, uh, important leaders in our sport or a new commissioner shows up and George Kliakoff comes to the Pac-12, I try to communicate with these people. But as you know, we're committed to, to serving all of college uh, tennis. We've talked a lot about D1 today and we will continue to do because it's where most of the change is happening. But we're also trying to do things that look out for all of the five divisions we serve, you know, so if you look over the eight years that I've been the CEO, Dave, and I made that declaration, we were going to serve all of college tennis. We've done things like move from two operating committees to five. So we're not only trying to talk to people outside of our sport, but we're trying to talk to people inside of our sport. So I'll use this as an opportunity, uh, you know, to thank all of the coaches who spend extra time in addition to their coaching, serving on our operating committees and our ranking committees and our rules committees and our, you know, awards committee. So a lot of things we can do, Dave, are to, to have communication. And the final thing I'll say is, that we can spend a lot of time pondering. Uh, one of my favorite articles was written uh, about what was called solitary leadership. And everybody thinks that leaders are always doing things. And the premise of this article called solitary leadership is before you can do things, you actually have to think about them you know, a lot. And so I spent a lot of time thinking, I spent a lot of time communicating and not just with people outside the organization or coaches, but also with our staff. Uh, you know, I will be remiss if I don't continually thank them for their work and make sure that our coaches know how excited they are to come to work every day on behalf of coaches, student athletes, and, and college programs. Yeah, and Tim, yeah, I talked about the, the relationships specifically with the ATP and the ITF, these, these global relationships. And I think for any coach, who's recruited internationally, as I did when I was 
a coach and, and some of the things you would hear. I mean, I actually wrote an article for tennisrecruiting.net when I finished my uh, coaching career and it was entitled uh, College Tennis is for Losers because it was a direct quote from a coach that I'd heard from several coaches that I'd heard from when I was out recruiting, trying to encourage their players to look at the college pathway. And I think those barriers now are, are coming down. I mean, any coach can point to this relationship with the ITF, with the ATP, and be able to back up their statement that, that college tennis is truly a pathway for, for these players that if they're interested in playing professionally, they can absolutely go to college and do so. So I think uh, a lot of coaches will be uh, very grateful for the work you put in in that area. So thank you. And to, to, to that point, Dave, which you're making a very, you know, perceptive one, as you always do, and you lived this, I didn't, you know, I was an orchestra conductor and had to do the same kind of things. I recruited, mm -hmm. you know, great musicians from all around the world to come to Arizona State. And I first and foremost tried to make sure I had the best kids from Phoenix and then Arizona and then the Western part of the United States and then all of the United States. But we had people from Venezuela and China and the like. So, you know, I know the, the conversations that coaches have, but one of the things that I will say is great leadership happens over the long haul. And while I appreciate your thanking me for the work we've done recently to put these partnerships together, it really is the product of visions that David Benjamin had 20 years ago and conversations that I had with David and John Vagosin in 2002. We yep. were preaching these same things about college tennis as the connective tissue in our entire sport. And sometimes it takes 20 years for something to come to fruition, right? You know, it's like everybody lives in this world of a society that's, you know, for me and for now, and yet you plant a seed, it takes a long time to get a giant oak tree or, or a redwood. So while you're gracious to talk about the work I've done, and I'm proud of it, this really is the product of a lot of work over a long haul, you know? So I guess the other thing I would say, going back to answering your question about how can we have influence, I would say we should always think long haul. One of the things I've always, you know, taught and tried to live myself is that we should always work beyond our tenure. We should always work beyond our tenure. I know coaches and even our staff are really interested in practice this afternoon at two or the match this coming Friday or Saturday, but what can we do to live beyond and work beyond our, 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 our tenure? Yeah, along the same vein, Tim, um, actually read, read a quote this morning that I think you'll enjoy from Ray Dalio. He says, uh, I have seen people who agree on the major issues waste hours arguing over details. It's more important to do big things well than to do the small things perfectly. And I'm, I'm saying that <laughs> leading up to our discussion around the NCA COC decision to pilot the NCA singles and, and doubles division one championships in the fall. Can you talk a little bit around that timeline, how that came to be? Some of the coaches would argue that unless all the details are perfectly figured out that we shouldn't do this. And that's why I'm kind of saying this quote, because I believe in what Ray Dalio is saying. He's articulated exactly what I believe. But can you expand a little bit on how this came to be and why you believe it's in the best interest of college tennis moving forward, especially Division One college tennis? Sure. You know, I think another quote related to that is, you know, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And, right. and we tried to use that as a 
as a as a mantra throughout this entire process. So, uh, without spending too much time, I referenced the Snodgrass study that started in January of 2020, and when we surveyed our 615 or so uh, uh, D1 coaches. They didn't agree on everything, but 90% of them did say that now was probably the time for change in our sport. And it's, I think it's very clear to the coaches who've been around a long time, this idea of moving the championships is not a new one. I mean, it's probably been discussed for 20 years. Um, I can tell you that when I took this job in 2015, one of the first things I did was to put together a task force to study the fall and Dave, you know about this because you were gracious enough to help lead it, you and George Usack. And as somebody to your point about Tim Russell having watched a lot of college tennis matches, I came into this job you know, with certain ideas. I didn't wanna push them on people, but I wanted to ask the right questions because I think one of the things that top leaders do is you always ask the right questions. So I had our task force study the fall because I said, quite honestly, the fall didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, and I, I try to always ask questions and, and listen and learn and, and try to use a Stephen Covey seat to understand. And I was told, okay, well, some coaches use the fall to assimilate freshmen and some use it uh, to do player development and some try to mesh a team together and travel as a team. Other people were sending individual players to five different locations on a weekend, whether it was a pro futures, et cetera, et cetera. And you might recall that uh, George, you, uh, Dave, you and George and the task force came together with a plan that was almost like a golf FedEx mo model in the golf world. Uh, and then we had our D1 operating committee discuss it and people weren't ready to move forward with it. So instead of cramming this down people's throat, we kind of tabled it. And I was early in my tenure. I probably should have pushed a little harder on it because I liked a lot of the concepts your group came forward. But in any case, our D1 operating committee kept having continuing discussions, including the role of professional tennis, right? Our operating committee once came within three minutes of voting on saying that college players shouldn't be able to play pro tennis, you know, and, and we didn't make that rash move. And I'm happy that we didn't again, because of what's come together with the NCAA and the ATP. I just want to insert one thing I wanted to say while you were talking about tennis is for losers. Anybody who was watching college tennis is for losers. Anybody who was watching the Australian Open last night, I think was excited to see Ben Shelton play JJ Wolf and end up five sets later. College tennis has been getting a lot of great play in the pro world. But in any case, if we go back to this journey, uh, we then had this task force, we worked together with the NCAA committee. And in fact, for about the better part of six or seven years, I personally did not take an affirmative position. I wasn't sure if I thought this was a good or bad idea. And after going through the process, I really came to believe this was in the best interest of our sport for a number of reasons. One, from a marketing perspective, it's going to be very much easier to be able to explain to people that the fall is for individual and the spring is for team. That was the biggest finding that the Snodgrass interviews came from the 50 uh, athletic and college 
leaders, which is you, you should better define your seasons because they basically asked the same question I did when I took the job, which is like, what is the fall about here, right? <laughs> you know, and I think we had a number of lessons we learned from COVID and I don't ever like to be a chicken little type person, but in fact, uh, you know, there were some people who were concerned we might lose the fall altogether. Uh, we had serious athletic directors going, why does college tennis have a fall anyway? And we do know that, that tennis as a sport, not just college tennis, is a year-round sport, right? For better or worse, whether you're a junior player or whether you're a pro yep. uh, player. But we did have, you know, especially while programs were getting cut during the pandemic, some ADs going, well, why do you have the fall at all? And in my eyes, this was one good answer of, once the NCAA defines the fall and puts a championship there, we have got our fall defined, right? And I think it's not going away. But I also think if we now believe that the team season is really, you know, one of the great things about college tennis, it's really going to give us a time to focus more on the, the team season in the, in the spring. Uh, and, and I think we're going to be able to spend time to go, what does that look like? There were some other factors, Dave, that were things like we've learned that the tennis channel, for example, was not interested in broadcasting the team where it was placed in the season because it overlapped with the French Open. Uh, based on what we just talked about, which is the season of tennis, the end of November is an open slot for the tennis channel. I think we're always asking as we move forward into the pilot, what are we going to have as uh, the metrics of success. How are we going to know if this was successful? And I don't want to base this just on if it ends up on TV, right? Because we don't even know nowadays how people are going to consume content. Is it linear TV? Is it broadcasting? Is it, is it ESPN Plus? You know, the, the tennis channels, demographics, you know, whether they like it or not, are actually, you know, decreasing. There's fewer people watching, they're older, et cetera. So I think this whole study was trying to say there's a lot of things going on here, Dave. And part of it was student athlete health and welfare. And if you've got the chief medical officer lobbying, but we also with back to these partnerships and I might sound like I'm rambling a little bit, but you know me enough that I try to take the threads of a tapestry and tie them together. So let's say that our coaches believe that a permanent home for the team season is really an important uh, initiative moving forward. And let's just say that the USTA might be interested in bidding on that. And let's just say that they're only interested in bidding on it if it doesn't include the team in the May. You know, so when you asked me a question about people making decisions and having to have everything determined, I, I would just disagree with that as a as a premise, right? I mean, in life, not everything, you know, you know all of, uh, at once. So you make decisions based on the best information you have. And I'm not saying this is gonna be a, a failure. What I'm suggesting is you don't always know everything when you make a decision. So based on what we learned from Snodgrass, based on what we heard from the NCAA championships committee, based on what our partnership with the USDA was telling us and based upon the work of the task force, maybe the COC came up with the perfect 
plan, which is to have a pilot test, right? Because those coaches who said, as you pointed out, Dave, well, how come the decision was made if you didn't have all the answers? Now we're going to see some things. Can we get the broadcast things lined up? Are there fewer people dropping out? Uh, are we doing a better job of, of marketing our fall and our spring? So I think the collective wisdom of this committee putting the two-year pilot might have been just the you know, the, the, the right answer. Uh, and the final thing I'll say is, is whether it's you, Dave, or any other coach who wants to call and continue this conversation, I'm always available to chat, but that's kind of my, my best trying to tie the threads of the tapestry together. No, Tim, I think that's great and, and clears up a lot. The the one thing maybe you didn't clear up, which is one of the rumors that uh, I'm not sure how how it uh, has gathered steam, but there's several coaches who believe now if it's in the fall that the U.S. Open wildcard for a U.S. citizen champion of the NCAA singles or doubles tournament is is now going away. Can you can you clear up that misnomer? I'll try. First of all, I never speak. Uh, for another organization. Sure. So ultimately you can, you or any of the other coaches can speak with the NCAA, but I can tell you, I have spoken to them and I have been given permission to share what I'm basically going to share. And I've had a number of coaches text to the me. USTA, Tim, you mean, yes. not the Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. To the USTA. What the USTA has told me, I can say, yep. but I can tell you that uh, I've had a couple coaches text me too bad we've lost the wild card to the U.S. Open, and I've texted back, you know, not true, bad rumor. Uh, so let's just make sure we understand what the wild card is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. So back to connect when I was watching ASU, it used to be whoever won the NCAA got the wild card. Sargis Sargisian was from Armenia. He played at ASU. He won the NCAA. I went and watched him play five sets and I think beat... Uh, Michael Joyce after being the NCAA championship champion. A number of years ago, the USTA board made a decision that they were only going to give uh, such wild cards to Americans. Now, what is not a guarantee, and Martin Blackman, who is the head of player development, actually has a policy. There is no guarantee even for an American. The USTA has the option to give an American the wild card. The good news is whether it's Ben Shelton or Peyton Stearns, they've, they've been doing that. But there is no guarantee that a, an American winning the NCAA has to get that wild card. That's the first thing everybody has to understand. But next, the USTA has made it very clear that moving the championship from the spring to the fall for individuals does not change how they're going to approach giving out the wild card. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, if all of a sudden somebody wins that in the fall and breaks their leg in July, they're not going to get the wild card, right? They probably wouldn't have gotten it even if they won in May and had a broken leg in July. So the reality is, you know, I don't know where the rumor started, I've been on the phone not only with Martin Blackman, but Craig Morris uh, is now the uh, a member of the ITA board. This topic came up at our board meeting. He gave the same answer. So the USTA is committed uh, to supporting American players, including when it comes to wild cards, and, and not just for 
the NCAA as a wild card of the US Open. Martin Blackman's done a wonderful job of working, Dave, with you to give wild cards to winners of our ITA championships, whether it's uh, finalists at the All-American or our fall championship. So without a question, uh, you know, that rumor out there is just false. Could it change? Yes, because as we all know, the leadership at the USTA changes. I mean, we already talked about the fact that their board made a decision that they wouldn't give it to international players, but the current status is uh, that that is not changed. So we can dispel that rumor right here on the podcast. Okay, thanks for clearing that up as well. <clears throat> um, so we mentioned TV a little bit and broadcasting, streaming, and, and what the, the future hold. Uh, we have a number of coaches who, you know, have seen the success, uh, you know, volleyball and softball have had in, in recent years and, and have been on television uh, quite a lot and are getting uh, larger audiences, maybe getting more support. Uh, I don't know if uh, programs are growing. I don't know if, you know, more athletic departments are adding these sports or, or not. That might be an interesting study. Um, but where where does TV fit in the conversation? I mean, do you believe it's possible for college tennis to grow and, and, and advance and be relevant within athletic departments if it's not on traditional linear TV channels? Or is, is that the be all and end all? Is that where you're spending, you know, 100% of your time right now? So it's clearly not the be all end all. Uh, and to connect the dots with several different things I've said, it's clear that we serve all of college tennis, right? And we do have coaches at the top of D1 who are convinced it is the be all end all, but we have coaches at junior colleges, D3, D2, NAIA, who probably aren't going to end up on ESPN, no matter how hard we work. And I don't think that's their aspirational goal either. I think we all have to keep asking ourselves, what does success look like? I continue to believe that one of the reasons college tennis is successful is that so many talented student athletes get to work with so many talented coaches on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And it's what's happening in the classroom. It's what's happening in practice. It's what's happening in the, in the matches. So that's a kind of a contextual starting point for how I think about this. Do we spend a lot of time talking about broadcast? Yes. Uh, I think everyone has seen how we've tried to deal with this, uh, including our new uh, partnership with Crack Rackets. Uh, and the fact that the numbers that we've been producing on some of the broadcasts, uh, whether it's our team indoors or our fall championships, have actually yielded really good, you know, numbers. Uh, have we tried other things? Yes. I want to remind people that when Oracle was our largest partner, Mark Hurd had actually given us considerable sums of money to try to put things on TV. And I think uh, those who really are good at following us know that there were uh, four years where we actually put a lot of our championships on ESPNU and we brought in good uh, commentators. We brought in a major production company from LA, Jeff uh, Proctor and Pro Angle were fantastic, whether it was Steve Weisman or, 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 or Mark Lucero or Jasmine Miner on uh, you know, the broadcast. We tried to put on our absolute best broadcast. Uh, was it expensive? Yes. To be very transparent, it's probably $40,000 a day. Did it yield lots of people watching? 
No, uh, we might have gotten between seven and 11,000 people. Is that bad? No, uh, but uh, is it worth the return on investment? Is the ROI good? Probably not. Are we still committed to trying to you know, move things forward? Yes, but you, you then get to what does that mean, right? And everybody quickly turns to you know, women's softball and, and women's volleyball. My wife and I have become big fans of watching women's volleyball. And it's not just that it's a, uh, an NCAA Final Four. We were just watching fall games, right? So then you ask yourself, what is it that makes uh, that game appealing? Uh, one, it's, it's pretty well time defined. If you talk to Kathy DePore, who, Kathy DePore, who runs the Volleyball Association, she'll say it's action-packed and almost no breaks, right? She tells her coaches they don't even want these replays, right? We all know that there's challenges uh, broadcasting six courts on a doubles match. But quite honestly, even let's take our fall championships. I don't care how great the match is. If August, August Holmgren's, you know, playing Arthur Ferry at the Barnes Center, it's not, uh, you know, Novak Djokovic playing Alcaraz, right? And our sport has some different challenges than volleyball and women's softball. We have the pro sport that people have become, you know, interested in watching no matter how good ours is. There's not a lot of professional volleyball or professional women's uh, softball. Can we aspire to do that? Yes. Are we trying to learn how they're doing it? Yes. You and I have been on calls with those sports you know, organizations, but quite honestly, we also spend our time talking to people at ESPN, right? And what they're interested in covering. Kathy DeBoer gave you and I, I think the best advice, Dave, which is all of our coaches have to get other people to care before we can get the masses to care, right? You know, and she said the first thing she did was work to get a bunch of people uh, to understand as her coaches that they needed large crowds at their volleyball games, right? You know, if you talk to Mike Moyer, I referenced trying to connect a dot back to San Antonio. I talked to him. I said, Mike, how do you get 20,000 people to the, you know, wrestling championships? And he went through the litany of the things they do. And while all of us can be proud of what wrestling does, let's also remind people that there's 35 wrestling programs, right? So again, how do we measure success? We have 1,770 college tennis programs. So is tennis important? Is TV important? Uh, yes. Are we aspiring to figure it out? Yes. Is it the be all end all? No. Are there other things we can do to make our sport even more appealing? Yeah, so I think it's it's one element in a in a total strategic plan. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'd like to switch gears a little bit, Tim. I know you're always interested, fascinated by the topic of leadership, and you're always trying to <coughs> aspire and and learn to be a better leader yourself. And and obviously, you've led in various different uh, settings, but you also taught a leadership class. Am I right in saying that? And I'm interested, Tim, where do the classroom theories and the real life leadership scenarios diverge? Or do they? Wow, that's a great start. You are a top podcast interviewer. <laughs> so first of yeah. all, I think where they converge <laughs> is first you've got to actually read the books. So part of what I would recommend everybody do is 
is is is read a lot of interesting books. I've got a whole uh, uh, bibliography I'm happy to share, but I mean, I like everything from Good to Great and Jim Collins to all the Tom Peters books. And I'm, you know, since I'm getting to be an older guy at 67, I'm back to the years of Tom Peters and 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 Bob Waterman writing in search of excellence. But we also have terrific leaders these days like Doug Conant, you know, who was himself a college tennis player at Northwestern. Uh, he's written two great books, uh, Touchpoint and Blueprint. Uh, so, you know, whether it's Ray Dalio's book, Principle, or whether it's it's Doug, I just encourage everybody to be a lifelong learner, right? So there's great books out there. Uh, and that's a long intro to the real question you asked, which is where does this all diverge? And I think quite simply, it diverges in that everybody's situations are different, right? And, and there are no templates that are one size fits all. And I think that even, you know, our coaches know this, if you started your career at one school and went to another, or if you, you know, started coaching men and moved to women. I mean, I think of a guy like Brian Shelton, who's not only one of our greatest coaches, but one of our greatest, you know, uh, people in our sport. You know, I think he's the only person who's won a, a championship. I might have this right, you know, coaching women and men. So the context is where it diverges, Dave. I think you could have the same thing on paper, but, you know, coaching a women's team might be different than a men's team or a, a JUCO program different than a D1 program, a power five from a mid uh, major. But I think they also diverge as you change your own you know, philosophy, because I don't teach a course where I recommend everybody do what's in the book, right? But I do actually recommend that they go through some of the exercises, which I know we've been doing in our new coach education program with Coach Up, you know, do you have a philosophy, right? right. What is your vision? You've now worked at the ITA long enough to know that we not only have a vision statement, a mission statement, a transformational purpose, we have five uh, strategic initiatives, and then there's an action plan under each one, you know. So the, the idea of reading the books, I would say, is the starting point. And actually, I would say that the fun and the spice in life is actually where the divergence happens, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's where you build your own leadership principles and why a number, a number of our coaches are in the position to write their own books, right? <laughs> because we all know that there's, you know, there's no paint by numbers in this business. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tim, I, I think we may have, have done it. Um, you know, I, I've been with the ITA now uh, going on nearly three and a half years and, and obviously um, didn't fully appreciate the complexity of the ITA uh, when I was coaching and I've come to, to learn uh, that it is a much more complex organization. There's a lot more going on. The pace at which we work is, uh, is quite phenomenal and very invigorating. I'm not complaining. I, I love it. Um, but, but, you know, the amount of change as well that has occurred during your tenure, the number of new initiatives that have occurred, um, I haven't counted them all up, but they're, they're a lot. And uh, so just appreciate your leadership, what you've done for college tennis, what you've done for the ITA, 
the legacy that you created. Hopefully you'll be at it for another decade or two, and then uh, we can get to, to doing more great work. But thanks for all your work, Tim, and thanks for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast today. Thank you, David, for all you do. And it was just an absolute uh, pleasure.